Amen. Please take your Bible and turn once again, one final time, to Luke chapter 8. A section that began at verse 22, describing the areas of life over which Jesus reigns, over which Jesus has authority. And what we have seen is that Jesus has authority over all creation, over all of life. And so, uh, beginning in verse 22, we saw that Jesus has authority over storms. In verse 26, Jesus has authority over demons or unseen realities, but realities nonetheless. And here in verse 40, beginning, today, uh, with our, beginning of our passage today in verse 40, we see that Jesus has authority over sickness and death as well. And so follow along in your copy of the Bible, if you would, as I read aloud from Luke chapter 8, verse 40 through verse 56. If you're new to the Bible... Uh, the, the larger numbers on a page are typically the chapter numbers, and the smaller numbers are the verse numbers. I'll begin reading at verse 40 of Luke chapter 8. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Last January, I received a phone call from one of my... um, best friends. His name was Sam. He's a pastor in New York State. And I know several of you remember this story from about this time last year, but uh, some of you do not remember the story. We're not here, and so I'll tell it again. But uh, essentially, I, I missed the phone call from Sam, um, went to voicemail, and I heard it you know, a few hours later or so. And in the voicemail, he told me that uh, he had been diagnosed with uh, terminal cancer and likely had just a few months left to live. And he wanted my input since my dad had died of cancer of how he could use his last few months of his life to shepherd his children. That was essentially why he wanted to talk to me. 
And again, I was in this guy's wedding. He was in my wedding. We had been friends for, you know, 15, 20 years by this time. And it was uh, devastating news. He has a wife who's basically, you know, my age, Clarissa's age, and three young children who are basically uh, identical ages to my children. And uh, it was devastating to hear this news. And it reminded me that sickness is an intrusion into God's world, into the world that God has made. We can trace this all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, that sickness and death are the result of the curse. God did not intend for us to wither up and die. God, uh, and we're thankful for passages like this one that show the heart of God toward people who are suffering, people with any number of maladies, physical, whether they're visible or invisible, uh, whether they just be uh, that someone has a, a mental illness, whether it be that someone uh, has a, is crippled and will never walk again. We could go on and on, but these are all intrusions into God's good created order. When God made the world, he said it was good and there was nothing wrong, but then sin came and we have these kinds of realities that we have to deal with, including 38-year-old pastors being diagnosed with terminal cancer. This passage exposes us to this reality that the presence of sickness and death means that life is not as it should be. And you know that from your own experience, from your own toothaches and heartaches, that the world is not the way it should be. But the truth of this passage addresses that reality. It tells us that Jesus, the sovereign Lord of all, makes sickness and death end forever. That's the glorious message of this passage, that Jesus reverses the curse. He makes sickness and death go away forever, so that as Tolkien said, all the sad things are coming untrue. Here in verses 40 through 42, we see Jesus as the sovereign Lord responding to our urgency. Jesus responds to your urgency. And you notice that that this man, Jairus, uh, was part of a large crowd that welcomed Jesus back across the sea, the, the Sea of Galilee that he had crossed in our passage last week to go and, and preach the gospel there and bring gospel hope to a man who had been possessed with many demons for many years. And uh, after Jesus healed that man, he was not well received. We saw that was one of the emphases of the passage was that Luke keeps going back to how people respond to Jesus. And in that land where for the first time Jesus went and preached the gospel, he was not received well. People wanted him to leave. And so he got back in his boat, sailed across the same sea where just hours earlier he had stilled the storm, calmed the storm, crossed the sea again. And now as his boat comes back toward shore, people start cheering perhaps and running toward the shore so that they can be the ones closest to him when he gets off the boat. And so it says the people, the crowd welcomed him for they were all waiting for him. And you just picture maybe like when an, when an athlete walks out of a stadium after winning the Super Bowl, for instance, and his home crowd is there cheering him on. And just think of the, the, the celebration. That seems to be the kind of idea that, <clears throat> that Jesus is, the kind of reception that Jesus is receiving here in verse 40. But as part of this crowd, there is a man named Jairus, and all we know about him, we don't know his age, we don't know whether he was wealthy or not, but we know he was a ruler of the synagogue, which means he was well-known in this community. He was probably the man who chose which scripture passages to read from the law and from the prophets and from the writings, which would be like the Psalms and Ruth and books like that. 
And he's probably the one who's responsible for leading these services week in and week out. And so he's well-known. He's a respected, established leader in this community, but he's come to the place where he can no longer deny that when Jesus is around, strange things are happening. And he's willing to realize it, even if I don't agree with everything he's said. And maybe he's heard some of Jesus' sermons and he didn't agree with the applications that Jesus made, the fact that he himself is the fulfillment of Old Testament passages, he's starting to realize, maybe this is my only hope. I've got this daughter who's dying and she's been sick for a while and here Jesus is the only one who can possibly help. Have you ever been to that point where you realize that you are helpless before God, that there is nowhere else you can turn? This is what Jesus wants to bring us to, is to a point of desperation, to a point of urgency so that we will indeed realize that we are empty and helpless without the mercy of Jesus. So in verses 40 to 42, Jesus responds to our urgency. Verses 43 through 48, though, we see that Jesus is never in a hurry himself. Though perhaps Jairus ran full throttle to get to the shore so that he would be first in line to get to Jesus when he got off the boat, when he came back. Perhaps they needed to return the boat to the shore uh, you know, for the rental, boat rental or something. Uh, he knew he was going to come back sometime. So I'm going to be there waiting for him. Well, even though he was in a hurry, Jesus was not. And so what you see in verse 42, uh, really, I have a paragraph break here. Maybe you do in your Bible as well. This next line says, as Jesus went, the people pressed around him. Where is Jesus going? It says Jesus went. He's going to help Jairus. He's going to respond to this urgency. He's doing exactly what Jairus asked him to do, but Jesus wasn't in a hurry. Jesus is never in a hurry. His timeline is not your timeline, and it's not my timeline. And it's true whether what you're asking Jesus to do is bring salvation to one of your loved ones, or bring physical healing to yourself or one of your loved ones, or help you find a job, or help you get into a grad school program. All of that is on God's timeline, not our own. And I think that stands out to us as we see that Jesus starts going in that direction. He's responding to Jairus' concern and urgency, but he's willing to stop for others who need help as well. And so we find that as the people are pressing around him, which made me think of that horrifying concert in Houston back in November where people just mashed into each other so tightly that eight people died just from the compression of humanity. And hundreds, I believe, or at least dozens of other people went to the hospital, many of them in cardiac arrest because of the pressure of the people around them at this concert. And maybe that's what it was like where people are just bumping into each other and it was hard to tell who was touching whom. But yet Jesus says, somebody touched me in a special kind of way. And that's what we see is, as we get into verse 43, that there's a woman who had gone to every doctor she could afford. Maybe you've done that as well. And maybe it's not even an issue of affording the doctor because your insurance covers it. But you've gone to every doctor who is in your field, in the field that you need them to be in, and they still can't help you. And they just kick you to the next doctor who kicks you to the next doctor, and you feel like you're working your way up the chain, but nobody has any answers for you. That's been this lady's life experience for 12 years. And perhaps Luke is combining these two stories together, not just because they happened on the same day as Jesus was going to help one, but because for the same length of time, you have a 12-year-old girl and a woman who's been sick for 12 years and enduring great heartbrokenness in the meantime. Yes, she has a physical problem, 
But again, how much the Old Testament helps us understand the New Testament and vice versa. But in this case, the Old Testament law, the book of Leviticus would tell us that this lady, the fact that she has an issue of blood means she can't worship God in the temple. She can't go be around other, other Jewish people. She is ceremonially unclean all the time. So perhaps for her to even come out in public was an act of faith to say, I've heard, maybe my sister or a friend told me there's this person, his name is Jesus, and he's doing wonderful things for people. Maybe he can help you too. And maybe this is her last hope. She spent all the money she has, all of her life savings that she had accumulated before she became ceremonially unclean because she probably couldn't go get a job now at this point. And it's all gone and she is hopeless as well and perhaps full of anger at why has God given me this lot in life? Why couldn't somebody else have had this one and I have a normal happy life? But she comes up to Jesus and in this crowd of people that are bumping into each other, she came up behind him in verse 44 and touched the fringe of his garment, which was probably a part of, a part of his robe that had some tassels on it, part of the Jewish culture there. And when she touched his garment... She stopped bleeding, and she knew it immediately. She could feel the life that Jesus breathed into her, so to speak. And Jesus knew that someone had touched her in this way, even though there are people jostling him, trying to get into his path so that they can perhaps touch him. And surely other people are reaching out to have him heal their infirmities as well. At least you would assume that to be the case. But Jesus knew that power had gone out of him. And that's a a very unusual statement in verse 46 because it makes you think, well, maybe there's almost like a superstitious part of this here. But I think the reason Jesus called the woman out, and he probably knew through the work of the Holy Spirit who the woman was and was waiting for her to humble herself, make herself known, show her helplessness before the crowd. I think by calling her out, Jesus is saying I'm not this superstitious, lucky rabbit's foot that if you can just get a touch of my robe, all your problems will go away. Jesus' mission was more than just making people's physical problems go away. Obviously, he's concerned for physical needs, and so we should be as well. We should not look lightly on the, the hardships that people endure and the consequences of those hardships, like losing employment or like uh, losing opportunities to study in various contexts. But what Jesus is saying here is, I'm not here just to make your issue of blood go away. And in fact, when, when we see that, that he, uh, he says, your faith has made you well, he actually uses the Greek word that is used throughout the New Testament for salvation, uh, showing that, that there is a holistic element of our salvation, that God makes both body and soul well. And this lady was just concerned about her body, it seems, and he was concerned about her body and her soul. Because he realizes, just like we realize from reading the Bible, that this life is not all there is. That one day, this lady did die. And one day, you will die. And so even if you are healed, even if you pray for a friend or a loved one who is sick and is dying, and that person does come back to regain full health, eventually they're still going to die. Everyone in this story died. And so the, the short-term problem, yes, Jesus often met short-term problems but always as a way of saying, I am the long-term solution as well. Don't put your hope just in getting your issue of blood taken away or your leprosy taken away in chapter 5 or your, your, um, the fact that you're a cripple taken away in, in other passages in Luke. 
Jesus was concerned with both the physical and the spiritual, but we do see his, his compassion and his tenderness and his responsiveness here in being willing to stop to help this lady. And you would think, if you were Jairus, at least I think, if you're like, okay, Jesus, let's go. My house is this way. Let's run for it because my daughter's really, really sick. And then this lady comes up and Jesus pauses. If I were Jairus, I'd probably be like, um, I think I was here first. Can we please finish the job and then we'll come back to this situation? My situation's more urgent is probably what he has in mind. Again, Jesus works on a totally different landscape, on a totally different timeline. And so Jesus is never in a hurry. You notice in verse 45, though, that all denied it when Jesus started asking who this was who touched him. And even though there were probably dozens of people who could have said, oh, yeah, I guess I did bump into him, they were all saying, no, 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 it wasn't me. And even this lady was denying it as well, probably because of fear. But here she comes in verse 47. She saw that she was not hidden. She saw that her cover was blown. She saw that there was no way she was going to get away without acknowledging that she was the one who reached out in faith to touch Jesus' robe. And so she came, and just like Jairus fell down before Jesus, here she comes trembling, and she falls down. And this shows the posture of humility that all of us should have before God. When we read God's Word, when we talk to the Lord in prayer, We are not here to make demands on our all-powerful God. We are here to cast ourselves on Him because we know that He cares for us. We throw ourselves in humility before Him, before His presence. But she publicly declares here in verse 47, in the presence of all the people, why she had touched Jesus and the fact that when she did, she had been immediately healed. That was part of her story as well. She wasn't just acknowledging she was the one that touched him. She was saying, and it fixed my problem. And Jesus' response, which maybe she's sitting there crying with fear, and she says, daughter. No one's called her that for a long time. She's been hidden in her house for 12 years. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. You have put your hope in the only person who can remedy this need, this problem. And so the faith of Jairus was evident in his willingness to humble himself and come to Jesus, even though he was a ruler of the synagogue and probably disagreed with Jesus' statements that he's the Messiah. His faith is evident. Now this woman's faith is evident, and Jesus calls that out in verse 48. Daughter, your faith has made you well. And Jesus returns to this concept of faith in his power in verse 50. Well, now that this woman has been healed, Jesus finds out and Jairus finds out that this girl has died. And Jesus says, hold on, belief. Believe in the right person and in his power. And so it's not just faith for faith's sake. It is faith in Jesus and in his person and in his work and in his power to do all things because he is the creator. But verse 49 says, while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter's dead, just give up. So this person evidently had enough faith to believe that Jesus was powerful enough to heal someone who was still alive. But that was the extent of it. But what we see here in verses 49 through 56 is that Jesus overcomes the curse. And that involves not just sickness, but also death. And so where their faith was limited, they could say, I I have faith you can heal her while she's still alive. Now we've crossed that threshold. Now it's impossible. 
Don't annoy him anymore. That's what this word means. Don't annoy him. Don't harass him. There's no reason to make him run the rest of the way to the house. She's already gone. Just come home and let's go have the funeral. But Jesus heard this and responded, do not fear. How many times have we seen that in the book of Luke? I mean, going all the way back to to, uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth in chapter 1, Mary in chapter 1, having these, these revelations from the angel Gabriel. And in both cases, the angel said, do not be afraid. And then chapter 2, the shepherds and the wise men, and they're afraid and they're trembling, and the angel says, fear not. And throughout the book of Luke, this is happening. And here Jesus himself says, don't be afraid, only believe. Again, not just faith for faith's sake, but belief in who Jesus is, what he can do. And by faith, she will be well. And so this, this person's faith is evident in trying to get to Jesus in the first place, just as the woman's faith was evident in trying just to reach out and touch his, his hem of his garment. And, and the faith was to the point that Jairus was willing to go the rest of the way with Jesus back to the house, even though they've just heard she's already dead. Jairus says, okay, well, if Jesus is saying he's going to come, we might as well go all the rest of the way. Perhaps as you hear this passage, you begin to ask, well, how come I still have my physical afflictions? Or how come my loved one still died? Or, and you can just kind of keep filling in the blank. What we need to realize, again, is that uh, Jesus answers prayer for healing, for restoration, in ways that we might not expect, in times that we might not expect. And so part of the reason, um, well, I guess, I guess what I want to say is part of what we see going on here is that the way God heals someone is often through death, okay? So like I said, my, my dad, I was talking earlier, my dad died of cancer, you know, close to 20 years ago now. Of course we prayed for him to be healed. And I think we, we know hundreds of people who prayed for him to be healed. And so perhaps you've had similar experiences. How come God didn't answer those, those prayers? Well, ultimately, the Lord did answer those prayers. He answered them, no, I'm not going to heal in a physical way right now. But we also, as Christians, have a firm belief that, as this passage says, my dad is not dead, he is sleeping in a spiritual sense, okay? And so uh, I, I wish I could say, here's the magic bullet for how the Lord will heal your affliction or your loved one. And I wish that if you say just these words, now you know that your loved one will be healed. But that's not the way that Jesus works, and that's not the way we should expect him to work. But we do know that Jesus is looking, again, looking at the long game, looking at the fact that there is another life, and that all those who have put their faith in Christ experience that life, and life more abundantly, Jesus says. And so we look with hope to the day when we will see our loved ones again, when we will be truly healed, and when, as we read in Revelation 21, verse 4, there will be no more death, and there will be no more sickness or crying or pain. All those things are part of the old world order. And this passage is showing us that Jesus is bringing the new world order into the old world. And so there's this strange convergence between the old and the new. Theologians call it the already but not yet Uh, Those are super important words that if you can just kind of get your arms around, they help you understand passages like this one. 
and the error of the health and wealth gospel, and people like Joel Osteen and, and many others, the error is that they take the not yet and bring it into the already. And so what we need to do is realize that there is an already, that Jesus is already bringing his kingdom into time, and that's what he's doing when he's raising people from the dead, when he's healing amazing sicknesses, or excuse me, healing sicknesses in amazing ways. But we're still in the not yet. We're still in the old world where there is death, there is sickness, because the curse has not been completely reversed. So that's, that's maybe, hopefully, an explanation of why sometimes we pray, Lord, if it's your will, heal this person, and he doesn't. We're, we're living in the already and the not yet. That healing is still to come, and the Lord does work in, in ways that we don't always understand. I hope that makes sense and doesn't feel like a, you know, a cop-out or anything along those lines. It's not intended to be in any way. But verse 51, Jesus comes to the house. And you find out there are mourners there. Remember back in a previous passage that when someone died, when there were people mourning, they would play the funeral dirges perhaps on their flute. And they're sitting outside and people are crying and singing songs of mourning and they're weeping loudly. And Jesus comes to the house and he says, she's actually not, she's not dead. You don't need to be weeping. And so earlier he had said, do not fear. Now he says, do not weep. And people laugh. And when I read that, I, I thought of uh, Genesis 18, where Sarah hears, you're going to have a baby. And she laughs out loud. And then she goes, I didn't laugh. What are you talking about? And here you have people laughing because Jesus says, she's not dead. She's just sleeping. And what you find out is in the New Testament, Christians are never told, never described as people who have died. They're people who are described as those who sleep. And uh, we see that even into First Thessalonians 5, that uh, and, and chapter 4 as well in First Thessalonians, where Christians in that church were nervous about those who have already died, who have already gone to sleep, is what that passage describes. And so what we see is Jesus saying, she's actually not dead, she's just sleeping. People laugh in the middle of their tears, evidently, and Jesus goes inside with just three of his disciples. This is the first time that these three disciples are kind of singled out as being part of the inner circle of Jesus' followers. And he takes them inside, in verse 51, as well as the father and mother. And then he calls the child to arise. And this sounds very similar to the passage in chapter 7, where you had um, a widow who's now lost her only son, and they're carrying him on the funeral bier, is what it says. B-I-E-R, the funeral bier. And they're taking him to go bury him. And she's crying, and all the friends from town are crying. And Jesus walks up and says, child, arise. And he gets up. And goes on with his life. And again, that person died eventually as well. But what this was doing was showing that Jesus' resurrection power was bursting onto the scene. Was coming into existence. Was causing God's new kingdom to come into existence. And so what this passage is doing for us is revealing that Jesus reverses the curse. Jesus ends the old way. Jesus takes death and crushes death to death through his own death. And in so doing, this passage gives us gospel hope. And so if you are here and your hope is in anything other than in Jesus alone, this passage urges you to come to Christ alone, to rest in his promises and in his power. By him walking out of the grave, it shows that we will one day too walk out of the grave. We often sing in Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery 
talking about the resurrection of Christ. What a foretaste of deliverance. How unwavering our hope. Christ in power resurrected as we will be when he comes. That's where our hope is. That's in the gospel. That is the gospel message that Jesus overcomes sickness and all the attendant consequences of the curse. Sin, sickness, death, tears, pain, all of that is taken away in the gospel. And this passage is putting that on living display for us. And so this girl responds to Jesus' command to arise, and her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given to her. Why would he say, give her something to eat? And I would say two reasons. One is it just shows his compassion, his awareness of physical needs and physical realities. And secondly, because dead people don't eat food. That's why he said, give her food. If she starts to put something in her mouth, it's proof she's not a ghost, right? And so I think this is the second reason that Jesus said to give her something to eat. It demonstrates that the, that the, the reality of her resurrection actually was true. That this isn't a mirage that they're seeing. If she actually puts food in her mouth and swallows it, okay, she's actually alive. And so it was kind of him giving a verifiable proof that she was alive. Her parents were amazed. We've seen that throughout this gospel as well, this this sense of astonishment at who Jesus is. Remember when Jesus was teaching in the synagogue at the age of 12. So there's another age 12. People were amazed, exact same Greek verb. Later on, after Jesus was resurrected, people were amazed, exact same Greek verb. And so Luke is just trying to take all of these events that he's heard about from eyewitnesses. Maybe he's interviewed Mary. Maybe he's interviewed some of the disciples. Maybe he's interviewed people like Jairus. Who knows how Luke got all of the information that he's including under inspiration of the Holy Spirit in this book. But in so doing, he's telling a true story so that you will be amazed. That's the response. That's one of the responses that he's calling us to have as well. And you notice that kind of strange last line. He said, Jesus charged them to tell no one what had happened. Why in the world is Jesus telling people not to tell people? You'd think this would be like the greatest evangelistic crusade in human history if they go and tell people. And you remember that last week he told the man on the other side of the sea, on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, to go and tell people what what God has done for you. Here he's saying not to do it. And the reason is because people were going to be confused into thinking this is a miracle worker. All you got to do is get within arm's reach. You can get his hands on him, get your hands on him, and you'll be healed of all your problems. Jesus was here to seek and to save the lost. That's what we find out from chapter 19. Jesus the Messiah seeks and saves the lost in accomplishing God's plan. And so uh, the reason Jesus says not to tell people what had happened was so that his fame would not spread so quickly that now people are just flocking to him to get their temporal problems solved with no concern for their, with, for their spiritual problems of sin. So this passage calls us as those who see Jesus to be the true Messiah, to fall before him in humility, as Jairus fell before him in saying, my daughter is sick, and as the woman fell before him in saying, I was the one that touched you. That's the right posture of humility before his presence. It also calls us to faith in his power, to be amazed at what Jesus 
can do, at what Jesus has done, and particularly at the fact that he took the wrath of God upon him on the cross and truly died and then truly came back to life. And it also calls us to find peace in his presence. I love the line in verse 48, the last words that Jesus says to this now miraculously healed woman, go in peace. This is the response Jesus wants you to have as well. Peace is this incomprehensible sense that your life is completely in God's hands and you have nothing to worry about. And that's what he wants you to have in your circumstances, in your job search, or in your agony over your lost loved one, or your question of, will I ever find a doctor who can help me with my malady, and your financial pinch, and on and on, the Lord wants you to have an incomprehensible sense that he's in control and that you can have contentment as a result of this reality. Jesus reverses the curse so that there will be no more death. Jesus, the sovereign Lord of all, makes sickness and death end forever. It's about the middle of May when Clarissa walked into the room where I was at and showed me the Facebook post from my friend Sam's wife saying that he had passed away just minutes before. And I cannot tell you how many hours I cried on the way to his funeral and sitting at his funeral. I mean, the second I sat down at his funeral, after I'd already cried that day and the day before and the day before and the day before, and I'm sitting there just weeping my eyes out looking at his picture on the program that he had designed. And it was the most glorious funeral I've ever been to probably, and it was the most awful funeral I have ever been to probably. And you watch a six- or eight-year-old daughter have to be carried out saying, I just want my dad. And you realize sin and sickness and death are part of the curse. Sickness and death are part of the curse of sin, I should say. And they are not going to be forever. But Jesus is the one who overcomes sickness and sin and death. And we as his people say, even so, come quickly. Let's close in prayer. Lord, our confidence is in you alone. And so we pray that in our failing faith, in our doubts, our moments of desperation and despair, we would turn toward you. Pray that you would give us a holy longing for your kingdom to come and for your will to be done and a contentment with all that you do in our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.